in her last talk, Sky was addressing one aspect of um, balance. And I'm talking about this in terms of uh, middle way. This path of practice is called the middle way. And she was speaking about it in a very specific way in terms of finding a balanced way of relating to difficult mind states that may arise. Specifically, she spoke in terms a lot of uh, relating to aversion and the way that uh, we can hold that with some balance without falling into extremes uh, when it when it comes and actually finding uh, a positive side to this quality of mind that uh, often comes, at least at times. And so I was inspired to continue with that theme a bit tonight uh, from a different angle because I feel like in many ways our practice really comes down to uh, different ways that we find balance, uh, find this middle way approach to uh, things, to the flow of our life, to experience as it manifests. And um, Of course, as I said, this is the Buddha called his teaching the middle way. And, in, and when he spoke about it initially, at least, um, he talked about it as the, the middle way between the extremes of, of a sort of Uh, um, self-indulgent leaning into um, gratification of sense desires on one hand and self-mortification, mortification of the flesh, of the mind on the other and finding a a way between these extremes. But, um, But this quality of balance is key to our practice on a lot of levels. Now we can think of it in a number of ways in terms of the balance between effort and relaxation in our meditation practice. The balance between energizing factors and tranquilizing factors. And finding uh, the the place where those come into a sense of balance that really uh, lead onward and lead the mind to depth and to opening and to ease and the ability to really uh, connect with the truth of things. And the balance between um, opening to dukkha, to the inherently unreliable, unsatisfactory nature of, of conditioned existence, not, not only in a much broader sense than, than difficult or unpleasant experience, but the unreliability of impermanent existence, opening to that without falling into a sense of, of despair of defeat in the light of that, or uh, balance between a realistic assessment of what we find in our own mind and heart at times, and um, seeing ourselves just as a problem to be fixed or uh, a project to work on. All these different ways that we might see this movement towards balance, towards a balanced view, balance of energy and so forth. And in a way we could see the culmination of the path or the Buddha's realization, the enlightened, awakened mind, heart, as being an expression of the, this quality of balance brought to uh, fulfillment, to a deepest possible uh, place of true balance, a kind of 
unshakable or unassailable balance of mind and heart that's not moved by changing conditions, that rests with ease in the face of all that comes to us in a life. I'd like to read a poem now. This is a verse from uh, one of the poems that was from one of the, um, I'm not sure if it's from the one of the nuns, early nuns or monks. It's either from the Teragata or the Terigata. But it's just, a, it's an interesting translation of a part of one of their uh, kind of enlightenment poems. There's a collection of uh, these from the nuns and from the monks. They're quite lovely, beautiful poems, many of them. If your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. This, this expression of this idea that one might have a mind that is one's greatest friend is a beautiful possibility and maybe not one that we, we hold so much of the time or often as a real possibility, as a, as a potential for us to have a mind that is our friend or maybe even our greatest friends or our ally. Often we see our mind as, as a, just giving us trouble, going, seeming to you know, go out of its way to mess us up or not do what we want or run all over the place when we want it to stay still or all those things, you know, and we, we see it as a troublemaker or a problemo and not as our friend or ally. I love this idea of having a mind that is our true friend. And so how might we, we look at this and, and what does this mean, a mind that is not shaking? What does this mean? We might see this, one way to look at it at least, would be to see uh, this idea of a mind that is not shaking as a mind that is imbued with a quality of balance or quality of equanimity, we could say. In the world where everything is shaking, the world of change, a mind that does not, is not shaking in response to that, but is at a place of balance or ease, a mind imbued with equanimity. So this quality of equanimity, which is really the, is being developed, is the, really allows the path and our practice to unfold and also really represents in many ways, you could say the culmination of the practice. So it's the means and the end both. It points to a quality of really uh, a radical kind of openness to our experience, to our lives but an openness that avoids extremes of falling into reactivity, being able to meet life and all the changes that come without uh, movements towards grasping, clinging on one hand, or resistance, aversion on the other hand. And it's a very powerful uh, mental quality in its own right, and it also has a very key um, role in supporting other qualities. It supports the arising of wisdom because this quality um, that allows the mind to not shake, using the image from the poem, it lets 
lets the mind, the heart actually stay with things, with the truth of things, in a way that's steady enough and allows us to be there for long enough that we might actually have insight into things. We're not always running away from experience. We can rest with things as they are without falling into struggle resistance when it's difficult and we don't like it or the various forms of clinging and identification. And so it gives us a basis for a clear seeing into the conditioned nature of life, of experience. And we see that things arise and have their existence due to causes and conditions that come together. And this lets us have more space in how we relate to our experience and to not take it all as personally as we so often do. We see into the conditioned nature of things when we have this balance of mind. And and equanimity also supports and really um, empowers and forms the very basis for uh, all of the Brahma Viharas, Metta and the others. It allows them to actually function. It's what keeps them from falling into extremes and of the near and what are called the near and far enemies. And so in the case of metta, it allows it to uh, really open and connect with the, the wish that we share with all beings to be happy, at ease, to be at peace. Even those beings whose actions seem to be uh, causing suffering for themselves and others. We know that under there is a being that wishes to be happy. We can actually connect with that. It gives metta enough patience and confidence and non-attachment to be able to open care when those that we love do self-destructive things. So it it really gives us the possibility to actually wish uh, happiness for all beings. It balances and fosters courage within um, compassion, karuna, the second of the Brahma Viharas. This quality of compassion arises when we're able to actually connect with and see the nature of suffering in our own minds and heart and in the world around us. And equanimity is what gives us enough balance to actually be able to open to suffering in the world in our own mind and heart actually show up for this without uh, fear, with strength, courage. It's, it allows us to act when that's possible, to name injustice, for example, to take actions to alleviate suffering when there's something we can do. And it also lets us uh, connect to, open to suffering when there isn't anything we can do Let's us be with it when, when there's, there's nothing we can do except show up and be there and meet it. Connect with some kind of real empathy without falling into pity or grief or despair in the face of that when there's nothing we can actually do in an active way. It keeps the quality mudita of appreciative joy or empathetic joy, mudita, this beautiful quality of mind It keeps it from falling into extremes. On one hand of of what's sometimes called the near neighbor, near enemy of this, which is a kind of 
uh, overly exuberant or giddy state where, where, where we're, we get kind of, kind of a self-absorbed state where it's all about me and how happy I am. And there's not a, a real connection and appreciation for the good fortune of another. It gets too extreme. It's a, a diluted, disconnected state actually. Or the uh, extreme of jealousy or envy, the opposite of this quality of appreciative joy, which is really a, a very painful, destructive mind state that would begrudge another's happiness as though somehow that means that there's less of it, less for me, less of it to go around. And, and so it balances this quality of appreciative joy, empathetic joy, in that we, we don't limit anyone else or ourselves. And there's a confidence that arises that lets us um, really appreciate delight in another person's, another being's happiness, but seeing that that in no way diminishes our own potential for this. I read an article a while ago when I was putting this uh, talk together the first first time I, I explored this subject uh, for a talk. It was an article by Gil Fransdahl, who's a teacher in California at, uh, near San Francisco. And he, he had a very interesting um, reflection there. Uh, the word equanimity that we have in English, there are two different poly words that, that could be translated as equanimity. And they point to two different aspects or two different qualities of this, uh, of, uh, this quality of balance that I'd like to speak to. Uh, most of us have heard the word upeka, and this is the word that's used for the Brahma-vihara translation, upeka, translated as equanimity. And apparently this word literally means something like to look over. And it points to um, a kind of equanimity that arises from uh, a power of, of a broad way of observing things. Ability to see a bigger picture without getting caught or lost in the minutia and details of what we're seeing. You know, it has uh, points to, I think, um, qualities of, of a kind of um, patience or understanding in our view in the way we observe experience, observe our life. And uh, there was an example given comparing this to uh, what Gill called grandmotherly love, where we could think of, a, of an example of a grandmother really caring for, loving her grandchildren, but because of her experience raising her own kids, she's less likely to get caught up in the, the day-to-day dramas of their lives, has a more balanced view of that than perhaps their mother is able to have or their parent. And so when equanimity is strong, there is the possibility that we have, um, might have this broader kind of view of what is arising, what's happening in our life and, and less likely to get embroiled and swirled up in the uh, minutia and details of what's happening. Not so lost in the flow of our experience and all of the apparent issues that are seem to be arising there. And then there's the second word, one of these beautiful Pali words, tatra majatata. It's a compound of 
three short words. The first one, tatra, means there, or sometimes translated as all of these things. Maja is like majjima nikaya, means uh, middle. And uh, tata means to stand or to pose, to stand. And so putting them together, it means to stand in the middle of all these things or of all this. And so this points to this uh, ability to remain centered, you could say, in the middle of all this, of all that's arising. This uh, balance that um, has a direct relationship to a kind of inner strength or uh, integrity or stability and qualities of, of a certain, uh, qualities of calm, well-being, inner um, vitality. And so it's, it's a, this, this quality is, is um, like, like, I like to think of it as the keel in a sailing boat, a sailing vessel. They have this keel um, that's very heavy and it goes down deep into the water and it, it allows a ship, a sailboat to lean way over in winds, but not tip over. I mean, they do, of course, sometimes, but um, it, it really keeps them quite upright. And I remember I, I, when I was used to live in San Francisco, I lived in this very um, nice old fire station that had been converted into uh, the two floors into living quarters. And my the landlord there gave us a break on the rent so that we would let him, in exchange for letting him build a 40-foot sailboat there in the in the yard next to it. He had it kind of braced up and tied to the side of the building. So I got to see this process over the years I lived there from a just a hull to a, a finished boat. And finally, it got taken away one day. And at one point, I noticed he was... He was getting lead out of batteries and uh, recycling heavy material like lead to fill the keel. And the keel was, you know, I hadn't really paid attention to sailboats out of the water. That's huge. They're they're quite a giant fin and he was uh, filling it full of this lead. So there's this inner uh, stability of equanimity equanimity as... uh, as an example, another example of this, a kind of inner strength. One of my colleagues uh, once gave a talk about equanimity and she used a really great image that I decided to borrow um, that points to some essential qualities of equanimity in ways that it actually functions in our life, in our practice, moment by moment. And she used the image, this is from Winnie Nisarko, some of you may know, she teaches here. And she used the image of a skilled surfer, which I found to be a very perfect um, description of the quality of equanimity. Because uh, if you think of a surfer, if you've ever seen, um, you know, photo images, or maybe some of you are surfers, I don't know. But there's this, um, this fluid kind of responsiveness, connection to the environment very, very directly in each moment and this fluid responsiveness to the changing conditions that come as you're trying to ride a wave. So there's this intimate connection with the environment, with what's going on, with the circumstances there, but there's this relaxed, um, 
centered kind of response. It's very spontaneous. You can't surf if you're stiff and trying to hold just one, one tack, you could say, or one approach. You have to be able to, to uh, respond. And so there's a stability and balance, but it's not at all rigid or tight. There's lots of flexibility. There's presence. There's this clear, um, non-resistant connection and allowing. You can't fight against the wave. That's not going to do you any good. There's an allowing of it and a non-resistance and a connection. I was visiting a friend of mine uh, not too long ago and who has a teenage son and, and he had this thing. It's like a, a balance board. It was shaped like a, you know, like a skateboard or a snowboard, a symmetrical one. And it came up at the ends and it had a, a blocks on the bottom side and a roller that it, it fit onto and the blocks on the ends of it kept it from shooting off, kept it from, from really going way off. And, it, and the idea was to get on it and, and balance up there. And so my, my friend's son, he could just hang out up there and text his friends and eat a sandwich or whatever. And uh, when I got on it, I had to be near a wall. And, you know, I was trying to, first I was trying to find the balance point and stay there. And then at some point I realized, if I'm going to do this, I have to do two things, maybe three things. What worked for me was relaxing my gaze, relaxing my body and bending my knees, and staying moving. Couldn't stay still, couldn't try to stay still. So those were the keys there. So it was a very clear kind of uh, visceral, kin- kinesthetic experience of finding, finding balance, not through trying to f- get there and, and get rigid and hang on to it. That wouldn't work. That didn't work at all. So it's also useful to, um, when talking about thinking about equanimity and this quality of mind, of heart, to look at, at some of the things that it isn't because there can be uh, ways that we, we can um, sometimes get confused. Because sometimes we, we think, well, that there needs to be something, some kind of suppression or denial, not connecting, uh, not feeling something that's happening. But suppression, denial are reflections of an attempt to, to control experience or maneuver so that um, it's, it's only a certain way rather than this quality of actually opening to what's really happening trying to shut things down or deny what's happening. And sometimes this can manifest as, as a kind of fake equanimity, you know, like, it's okay, whatever. You know, we'll, we'll say this or we'll, we'll hear it in the mind, and, but actually it's not okay. <laughs> and we kind of paste that on top of it as though, you know, if we're a good Buddhist, we're, we're down with everything, it's all okay, whatever. But these kinds of uh, attempts to either deny or, or somehow not feel or suppress what's happening is just an expression of fear and aversion, attempt to control things. And, and true equanimity is based on what we could call a radical intention to 
open and connect with experience. So it's, it's really the opposite of anything that might feel or look like suppression or denial. And often people express to me and have, uh, who I talk to when I'm in this teaching role or in other times, uh, often, surprisingly often, people will, will have this fear that if equanimity becomes really developed and deep, that it means that they're no longer going to be feeling anything, no longer touched by life. That it somehow it points to um, what's called its, its near neighbor or enemy of, of a kind of indifference or apathy or, or numbness. as though we're no longer touched by life, don't feel anything, like a kind of insensitivity. Everything's just kind of, we're not bothered so much, but it's just this gray blah, like, like lint. We get a mind like lint from the dryer or something, just gray fluff. And this is so not the case. There is nothing even remotely like indifference, insensitivity, or numbness, or apathy, or disdain. The quality of equanimity is non-preferential. That's really different. So we're present but with what's happening, but we're not pushed or pulled around by it so much. It's not that we're somehow shut down or numb, not feeling anything anymore. And as this quality of mind um, starts to really strengthen and develop in us through our practice, it actually has the effect of freeing up a lot of energy in our lives. And it it allows the possibility of um, a kind of wiser response to life, at times at least, rather than um, just the the habitual patterns of of um, reactivity, of knee-jerk responses, of reaction. And so you could say it frees up internal energy for responding to external conditions and situations. And so another way of saying this is that you could say in the absence of patterns of reactivity, then our intelligence and wisdom are actually able, free and able to function. And there's a kind of wise discernment that can arise that lets us see what is wise or skillful in the moment, whether to act or to not act, and so forth, depending on what is appropriate in the moment. This quality of equanimity also gives us a great protection in life as we um, make our way and negotiate what we what is sometimes what are sometimes called the eight worldly winds. These pairs of opposites. It's traditionally classically taught of praise and blame and um, joy and sorrow and fame and disrepute and so forth. You know, changing conditions that um, are always affecting our lives, often in very unpredictable ways. And blame can come our way when we're just doing our best to be helpful. I know I've seen this. And there can be times when when gain can arise out of a situation of apparent loss. And um, these, these worldly winds, they're always blowing through our lives in different ways. And change is, is really the one thing we can count on as a constant in life, 
change, everything arising out of causes and conditions that are largely, not entirely, but largely uh, out of our control, our direct control. And so in the face of these worldly winds, the changing fortunes that come to us, in light of that, in the face of that, it may at some point start to occur to us that if we can't control experience and, and put a stop to all that change some way, then we're gonna have to find some other way to find some ease and a sense of, of uh, strength and maybe what we might call empowerment in light of that. And so going back to Winnie's surfing image that I borrowed, we'll start to see that um, where this sense of, of ease and ability to, to meet these changing fortunes and the worldly winds, it's gonna come from learning how to harmonize and move with that, to ride with changes, harmonize with this very impermanence, with this change and flow and flux. And so how do we do this? What are some ways that we develop this kind of balance that lets us ride the waves that come just within a single period of meditation or a day in our life or on retreat or in our, our entire life? And so as with pretty much everything in this world, mindfulness, mindful awareness is the key that's where we have to start is by actually connecting with what's actually what's happening. And so we bring mindfulness to bear. We bring that to meet our life. But when we think back to different meditation instructions we may have received, maybe uh, when we very first came to practice, we first were given meditation ex- instructions. And we might remember that we were told to open to whatever's happening. Bring this quality of mindful awareness to pleasant and unpleasant experience. And I know for many of us, when we first hear this, you know, okay, opening to pleasant, I'm, I'm good with that. But unpleasant does not sound like a particularly good idea. Sounds kind of counterintuitive. Why would you want to do that? And most of us probably initially didn't come to meditation to sit with painful feelings in the body or the mind. And we want bliss and peace and light and love. And of course we do. And that sounds great. But when we sit down and pay attention, that's not the only thing we get, is it? We get a range there. And we're told, well, if unpleasant stuff happens, open to that. If aversion, the mind screaming, I hate everything comes up, sit with that. Yay, yippee. Self-judgment, aches and pains, all the rest of it. Open to that, sit with that. And you know, we don't wanna do this. We certainly don't wanna do it when we first come to practice and we probably don't wanna do it now. We're not really good at it, you know. We have this reaction to get away as soon as possible. And if we can't get away, we get into battle mode. Okay, I'm gonna bludgeon it and get rid of it. Push it away somehow. 
And when we first come to practice and difficult things come up, we take it as, we take it personally and we take it as evidence that either we're doing it wrong, something's gone wrong, it's the wrong practice, something is wrong. Usually, often, that we're just no good. Take it as a sign of failure. But, but that range of unpleasant to pleasant and everything in between of what's difficult and what's easy, that's just part of the deal when you take birth in this realm, when you have a mind and a body. It's just the way it is sometimes. But if our strategy in our meditation practice in our life is to fight against when it's plain, difficult, unpleasant, then not only is there the... Um, the difficulty of being with those things. But there's this additional deep suffering that comes from our resistance and aversion to it. And if we struggle and to cling and hold on to it when it's pleasant, when it's gonna change, and the nature of all experiences to change and uh, become different. But if we're struggling to hold on to it, oh no, we'll get uh, burned, rope burned from the clinging to that. And so if we start to move towards letting go of struggle, then we don't suffer so much when the experience is unpleasant. We know it for what it is. It arises and passes as conditions change and move. And it doesn't destroy our peace of mind. And if we stop trying to hold on to pleasant experience, what we like, we can connect with that, we enjoy it, appreciate it, and it doesn't uh, lead to despair and unhappiness when it passes away and changes and um, that flow comes to us. And so through our training in mindfulness and the deepening of equanimity that comes, we're able to connect to all experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neither of these, And we learn, going back to this surfing image, we learn that it's not that there are good waves and bad waves, there are just waves. And we train the mind, the mind and heart learn to hold them in the same way. And this is the potential power of equanimity and the possibility of a a mind that really is our friend, our true friend, maybe our best friend. But as we probably may have noticed, just because this sounds like a good thing, might sound like a good idea, that's not quite enough. We can't just make it happen. And we, and we don't just stop struggling because we think, okay, I'm done now. Although recently I decided I was going to stop struggling. My most recent retreat, and I'm curious to see how that goes. <laughs> there is some deep decision I've done so much of it. I'm not going to do it anymore. So we'll see. So maybe we can. I won't rule out that we possibility that we might decide to do that. But mostly it's something that we learn to do slowly and it's something that we train and it comes from practice and a kind of gentle persevering effort to connect and open over and over. And so in meditation, as we know, we start very simply. We start this simply by connecting to 
things that are easy and tangible like the body sitting, the breath within that. And we allow the attention to stabilize on these relatively neutral objects. And if we learn this, if we use the surfing image, I've seen people learning, getting surfing lessons and they start, they put the boards out on the beach and they get on them and they practice standing up and going from a lying down to standing posture on the, on the solid, on the ground where it's less rocky than in the water. And so it's like that. There's initial skills that we can build on. So we start with something that's a little more simple and we have this graduated approach in practice and we learn by making mistakes and falling off and getting back up, being willing to start again. I think of uh, when, when um, babies or infants are learning, first learning to walk, a lot of that process is falling down. And I think, I think they have to go through that. I think part of the developmental uh, part of, of the whole um, physiology in the brain has a lot to do with falling and getting up. That actually if you don't let them go through that, it's not good. Actually, stability and balance come from doing that. So that's part of the process, and we learn it in the same way. We learn to stay upright by falling off, getting swept away, being willing to start again, try it again, connecting, opening, getting caught, getting whooshed, wipe out, we get back on. And then as as over time, we get better at it. and. Um, our balance improves. But it takes really a lot of patience and this um, gentle, persevering effort, a lot of kindness. We have to remind ourselves regularly that, uh, that this path takes time. You know, if it was easy, we'd all be enlightened. Clearly, you know. Most of you have been here for a number of days now, putting in great effort, been practicing for years and years, It's not, it doesn't happen like that for most of us. Maybe some people, kaboom, that's rare. And we're unlearning a lot of habits that we have deeply practiced, well-worn grooves in the mind and heart, and, and it's gonna take real dedication and, and time and patience for that to get unhooked. And the only way we're going to uh, manage this is to stay with things, stick with it, to be resolute, because until we're fully enlightened, there will probably be moments where we're lost in confusion and fall back into old habits of mind. So I'd like to mention um, a, few, um, a few things that really aid in um, the cultivation of the quality of equanimity that actually help to give rise to, sustain it, encourage it, nurture it. There's probably a number of these and we might each of us be able to think of some, but I'm just gonna mention a few this evening. The first one has to do with um, virtue or integrity, this uh, quality of uh, living ethically, this intention to live carefully and ethically. Because when we, when we make this, when we bring this intention to mind and really engage with it, really make it, um, important in our lives. 
It gives us a sense of confidence about our actions and words. And the texts um, speak uh, this beautiful thing. They say one who is, uh, whose life is endowed with integrity in terms of the way they live can go into any assembly of people and feel blameless there. And this is really a, a powerful thing in our lives. It, it really gives us a kind of inner strength and sense of balance. Because if we're caught in patterns of worry and regret and uh, you know, struggles with, with uh, harmful actions that we may be causing, if this is really happening in our lives, our mind is gonna be whirled around by regret and remorse and we're not gonna be able to come to balance. We won't find equanimity easily. But a life of integrity, an ethical, careful life, does our, then our mind does not fall prey to remorse and worry so easily. And, and there's a deep sense of self-respect that's, that grows in us. And this really supports this quality of balance, of equanimity. Developing um, strength of mind, mental development or cultivation is also a real uh, aid to developing equanimity. So just as we might um, uh, exercise or go to a gym and develop strength and stability of the body, we can do this uh, with, develop this with the, in our mind, with the mind as well. And so with uh, the application of mindfulness, we developed uh, stability with concentration and calm qualities of non-distraction. And when these are become strengthened in us, we're not so easily blown around by changing fortunes, by these worldly winds. And there's a stability and balance that comes from this. And it allows us to rest with the truth of things, as I was saying earlier, for long enough to actually uh, connect with the way things are, rather than being just swirled up in all of our um, thoughts about how it should be. Different things that support a sense of ease and well-being in our lives, and it could be very simple things, just taking some quiet time for ourselves or enjoying uh, um, beauty in nature in sunsets or sunrises or uh, the movement of the wind through trees, things like this if that touches our heart or um, just attention to our diet and uh, exercise or different things that we might think of for ourselves as as individual that support sense of ease and just uh, basic well-being in our lives. Maybe very simple things. And another thing that I often speak to, and I've mentioned this to uh, some of you in individual meetings, but I think it's really good, and this is something that the Buddha uh, really recommended that one do frequently uh, is to bring to mind one our good qualities and our uh, skillful wholesome good actions that we may have done to actually bring these intentionally into our mind to reflect on our goodness in terms of actions and in terms of uh, goodness that we may find in our heart times when we've been a friend to a friend simple things acts of uh, generosity or kindness that we may have done. It's so easy for us, I know for myself, it's been so easy 
to see all of my flaws and the way that I'm not good enough. And this, all our lacks and uh, all of these things are glaringly obvious to us. And we tend to dwell on them a lot and focus on all that's not good enough. But if we intentionally bring our good qualities to mind, skillful actions, this actually has a real balancing effect in our heart and mind because we get a a, a real broader, uh, more balanced view of things. We're not just skewed, our our vision perception isn't skewed just to one side and we don't overlick or diminish our goodness. So we see it's a mixed deal, a mixed package, but we see it with more balance. This really supports equanimity. We don't diminish our goodness. And as our practice unfolds, and in moments and times, we may drop into and touch a a really um, deep kind of equanimity, a deep, deep balance of mind. Sometimes this is called high equanimity equanimity or equanimity uh, regarding formations. It's also sometimes called six-limbed equanimity because it's said to arise at all six senses. And this is a time that we may drop into or open to where the mind rests in a state of really deep balance where it's not moved at all by pleasant or unpleasant experience. And it's said when it's really strong and highly developed that it's uh, said to be similar to the mind of a fully enlightened being because the mind is unshakable in the face of any experience that might arise. And there's a beautiful expression of this uh, perfect kind of equipoise is a word that's used to describe it in the description of the, the uh, mind of the, the Buddha to be, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha on the night of uh, enlightenment, uh, when assailed by the armies of Mara, this uh, image that's used of being assailed by torments of different kinds and seductions of different kinds, and um, doubt, finally, all these these uh, torments of mind. You could just say like a really, really massive multiple hindrance attack. And it said the great one's mind was not moved. That's how it is described. The great one's mind was not moved by any of this. It was unassailable, resting in a state of uh, deep, deep balance where there's no resistance, no attempt to hold on in any way. It's all fallen away. Now, this isn't where we start, unfortunately. This is more uh, something that we uh, might see as the culmination of our training. And and we don't start here, and we can't will ourselves into this kind of deep deep equanimity. It, It arises through practice, through perseverance, and through... Um, setting up the conditions for our, the mind and heart to open in this way. And the way we do that is through learning in each moment how we might be able to connect and open, allow things. And we start to get a feeling over time with what works and what actually might serve as a kind of right effort. And this is individual and we each learn it for ourselves because it's not fixed and it's not something we just get in place. It's constantly being 
refined and developed as we practice. And so we learn how to ride the changes, ride the waves of experience as they come. And we learn to know when we can stand up and when we need to get out of the water, when we're just going to get swept away, and strategies for doing that. And so you could say the practice is this process of developing the range of expanding the range of experiences where we can rest in um, a state of balance, of ease, of uh, a kind of freedom. And, and these two forms of equanimity that I mentioned, the one that um, is this broad power of observation in a broad way, seeing the big picture, and the kind that comes from inner stability, of being able to stand in the middle of all that arises. These are brought together through mindfulness practice. It leads us to this. And as um, our mindful awareness and our trust and faith in that grow stronger, then equanimity is, is brought along by that, that movement. There's greater independence and freedom, and more a sense of inner strength, stability. I'll end this evening with a quotation from Sharon Salzberg. To have the radiant calm and unswayed balance of mind that we call equanimity is to be like the earth. All kinds of things are cast upon the earth, beautiful and ugly things, frightful and lovable things, common and extraordinary things. The earth receives it all and quietly accepts things as they are and sustains its own integrity. It is a state of peace to be able to accept things as they are and this is to be at home in our own lives. We see that this universe is much too big to hold on to but it is the perfect size for letting go. Our hearts and minds can become that big and we actually can let go. This is the gift of equanimity. So we'll have just a, a little, <clears throat> a moment more, a moment of quiet here. I'll ring the bell and then we'll do a little chanting to end the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.